Welcome to Round Hill Radio, the podcast from Round Hill Community Church. Through our conversation, we discover the holy and the ordinary, find moments of grace and peace, and redefine what we talk about when we talk about faith. Today, we are experiencing a live conversation that was had with the Reverend Dr. Jim Antall the Sunday of October 25th. If you miss this opportunity to connect with us live, don't worry. There's a lot more opportunities happening in November through the Round Hill Community Church Bible Study. On Monday mornings at 11 a.m., we'll be streaming a live podcast recording, which is giving us a chance to study four biblical stories that are associated with the season of Advent. Through these stories, we will take a deep dive into faith, hope, love, and joy, and prepare our hearts for the celebration of Christmas. If you wish to attend and be part of this Bible study and live podcast recording, please visit roundhillcommunitychurch.org. Yes. So Leslie and I are both on the staff here at Round Hill Community Church, and uh, it's been our great pleasure already to have a chance to meet uh, the Reverend Jim Antal. He's the author of a remarkable book, Climate Church, Climate World, How People of Faith Must Work for Change. And we were uh, really delighted to be able to have a, a nice conversation with Jim on a podcast. Jim also delivered the online message for our service that was broadcast this morning. And uh, so this gives us an opportunity to continue that conversation or engage with people who didn't have a chance to interact with us in this way. So, Jim, we're, you're an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. You've been a great activist for the environment for the globe. So we really are very honored to have you with us and, and welcome to this event. It's my pleasure to uh, be back together again with uh, you, Ed and Leslie, and now with members of your congregation. Yeah, fantastic. So uh, I thought I, I've got a question uh, to share with you, Jim, just to kind of get things rolling and uh, give people something to think about as well. <clears throat> um, it was. It actually occurred to me to me today that so many of our scripture lessons that we cherish and so much contemporary wisdom that's emerged in the last few years about change, about how we change our habits in personal ways, really focuses on small steps, tiny habits, right? Don't try to bite off more than you can chew because that's a really hard way to change a habit. However, you make it extremely clear in your book that we're living in, in, a, in an urgent situation. And uh, the, you know, the, uh, there's a tremendous amount at stake for this generation and for generations yet to be born. So how do we proceed when so much of our scriptural wisdom, so much of the contemporary wisdom aims at tiny habits, but we know we've got to act in big ways? Can you help us with that? So th this is a, a great question, and it may be we have to go back and forth a little bit on this. So I want to open that door right right from the beginning, because I don't think what I'm about to say is like an airtight uh, response, because I think you're right. Your, your premise of your question, I think, is right. That, and, and human beings, we are really good at uh, um, adapting to incremental things. Mm -hmm. So if we're trying to change a habit, we make an in incremental change and we get better at it. We make another incremental change, we get better at it. And spiritually, when, when you have a spiritual guide um, or even in the congregation, we help each other in those ways. The reason I focused my sermon today on the concept of opportunity, in a way, is my response to your question. Hmm. It's to reframe the sense of, oh my God, this is a crisis and it's on a scale that is sort of unimaginable 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm only capable of these incremental changes. How can I make a difference? Mm-hmm. And, and the frame that I want to offer people, which I also think is rooted in our biblical heritage, is we are in a Kairos moment. This is an opportunity. Set aside how it may feel intimidating or how it may feel, uh, you know, ginormous. Set that aside and and simply, uh, you know, put ourselves, um, uh, you know, in in God's sunlight and saying, you know, thank you for providing me a life during which my life will actually make a difference. Mm. Even though I may be only an increment of one, my life will actually matter right now because what our generation does is going to have an impact on, you know, dozens and scores and hundreds of generations to come. Mm. That's at least the beginning of a response uh, to this question. I think, I think it's a very, I think it's a very astute question. It's not a simple question. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing I will say, Jim, I think you've been so great about reminding all of us that if we think about ourselves as only one seed, it's only me planting one seed, that's one thing. If it's uh, three million people planting a seed, then then now we're talking about big impact from the collective of all of those those tiny seeds. That that's exactly right, you know. And and you know, you've been your congregation, you as its leader, and your congregation has been terrific. Not just to focus on this right now, but you you have a history of focusing on on this stuff. I, I if I if I uh, understand correctly, Larry Rasmussen. Mm-hmm. Um, preached at your congregation uh, a few years ago. He's he's a friend of mine. We we've uh, been together in different settings, and you know there is nobody uh, sort of uh, more uh, who who brings more um, uh, sort of uh, ethical uh, chutzpah to the conversation um, <laughs> as as Larry. Uh, and and what happens, I think, is momentum gains. You know, is that you know. You, you, as a pastor, you know, I was a local pastor for 20 years, 10 years in Newton and 10 years in Shaker Heights. And and it seems like, oh, my God, there's so many things that we want to focus on. But by persistently focusing on the things that can matter and must matter to your congregation, I think a momentum builds in that regard. That's great. Thank you, Jim. Leslie, do you have a question for us? I do, but I actually wanted to have a uh... I have a little feedback on what Jim just said, because it makes me think of a person, something I've heard once that, you know, we have the things we have, we want to do that are urgent and the things that are important. And this actually feels like both (laughs) at the same time, you know, we have the things that that really pull at us every single day that we have to deal with, which are so, you know, loud in our ears. And then we have the important things that are sometimes hard to get to. So, so Leslie, I want I want to uh, respond to what you just said because um, pe- people listening to this or, or watching it later on, they, they might uh, recognize uh, what it technically is referred to as a Johari window, and you have two scales on it, right? And a, a vertical scale and a horizontal scale, and importance is on one scale and urgency is on the other scale, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the things in that quad which are both urgent and important, it it can feel like an alarm bell, mm-hmm. but one of the benefits of being connected in a congregation is that that gives us a context in which we can share with each other, like, 
oh my God, you know, I just read the IPCC report, you know, and that that's that's the United Nations report on climate change, you know, every so many years, right? And 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 somebody from the congregation can help us to on the one hand calm down, but more importantly, discern, okay, how is it that I am called or you are called or our congregation or our town is called to take action in relation to that which is up in that quadrant of, of important and urgent. Yeah. So churches, I think, don't have a reputation for being particularly good at changing quickly or making fast, big decisions. I think of turning a big ship, right? Yeah, it doesn't always happen. Are there, are there exceptions to the rule about that? Are there ways that we can uh, make ourselves a little more, a little more spry? Uh, you know, that's a really, really good question. Um, uh, it, so I'm, I'm, but I'm, I'm, I'm quiet now because I'm rehearsing in my mind the the dozens of congregations that I'm familiar with personally. Um, you know, a couple of which I led personally. But when I was the leader of the United Church of Christ in Massachusetts, I had at the beginning 400 congregations I was responsible for. So I got to know dozens and dozens and dozens of them rather well. And um, what was re- what was uh, very gratifying, but also remarkable relative to your point about change, was how many of those congregations, I- I'll put it in a funny way, they, they found that they couldn't stop thinking about God's call to engage this issue. Mm. And and that that kind of persistence, um, I think, prompted these, as I said, scores of congregations uh, to uh, to say, um, you know, what I have said many, many, many times, which is climate change isn't like one issue, and then we have a hunger committee, and then we have a homeless committee, and then we have you know three other committees, and we've had these missions in our church, you know, for twenty years. And we also have people who oversee those missions. You know, they have names. Mm-hmm. And those people are strong advocates, right? But that's how 90% of our churches are, maybe maybe 100%. But climate change is going to make each one of those missions worse. And it's, gonna, and it's already doing so. And my experience, back to your question, is once a congregation begins to see oh my God, this thing, climate change, that politicians have turned into a political issue, it's not a political issue, it's a, it's a moral issue, it's a theological issue. Oh, by the way, all the things, all the justice issues my congregation cares about, it's already making them all worse. And that's when, at least in my experience, these scores of congregations say, you know, we, we need to make this a kind of an overarching issue. Um, and the speed with which, back to your question about rapidity, the speed with which a congregation can do that, it just kind of depends on how quickly they're capable of taking in that process that I just described. Some, I've seen some do it in a, in a year. I've seen others take, you know, two, three, four years uh, to do it. Because sometimes it can feel that that feeling of the controversy or air quote controversy can sometimes feel really overwhelming, even if no one's saying it out loud, you know, that it can, it can feel like an overwhelming force, even if everyone's in agreement about it. And, and, you know, this, this, 
the, the point you just made kind of in parentheses out loud, it's one of the most important things congregations need to do. And the transition that we were just talking about, one of the things that makes that transition possible is when a congregation says, you know what, we need to talk about climate change. If you go to the, the United States premier climate scientist right now is Catherine Hayhoe. Um, she is a, a Texan. Let's start there. And she is an evangelical Christian. And I, I know some people listening to this are saying, wait, what? Evangelical Christian and a climate and, and, a, and a climate scientist? Yes. And um, and if you listen to what she says, uh, she will tell you, you know, through she has literally hundreds of brief YouTubes to help people communicate better about climate change. The number one thing she says on every single one of those YouTubes is we need to talk about climate change. Mm -hmm. And churches can be, and, and in fact must be, uh, a safe enough place where congregants can talk to each other. And my experience is once that conversation starts happening in a safe context, which I, I think you know, uh, uh, effective churches, well-working churches know how to do, then what happens is all this, all the stuff that it has politicized the issue of climate change, that gets set aside and everybody realizes, oh my God, I love my grandchildren and the earth that we're giving to them is not the earth on which I was born. What, you know, what can we do together? Jim, I just wanna offer a comment to that and then follow up with a question. But to your point, one thing that I hear uh, among my own congregants through their involvement in different agencies related to relief for all kinds of people in different circumstances, uh, it's like a new sentence is regularly appearing in the conversations. They will say, how's the work going with such and such an agency? And they will often say, well, you know, because of climate change, and then they finish off the sentence by saying, this is how the work has had to, had to move into a new course. And I think the other part of that, you know, I've gotten to know a fair number of people in the last few years who travel extensively. I always ask them whenever I have a chance, so what are you learning about what has changed about our planet as a result of climate change? There's always an instantaneous response, right? So I think that you're suggesting that there's already a way to open up that conversation. Right. Well, and, and you've just very adeptly named a couple of ways. And we can all do that with each other. And thereby, prompt is, is too sort of wooden a word, but draw out, draw each other out so that instead of, instead of allowing what are often the sort of headlines which cause us to shut down to kind of command what what we share and say with each other, we allow what you know. What is the reality of our Earth? What is the reality of human impact on the Earth? To command what we share with each other, and that then influences what we're going to do with the one you know wonderful life we've been given. So here's a, a follow up question. I was just thinking about your comment related to the the way in which churches can be uh, very deeply aligned with missions that they've developed over a course of time. Um, I think what it, it sounds like what you're suggesting is that it, it's a movement from, yes, continue to do those things, but ask the question, how does climate change relate to that? So that becomes the overarching issue. 
Um, what would you suggest? How how can churches go about that so that there's a movement from, let's say, a specific mission that want that a church responds to financially or with volunteers to something that moves into advocacy? Because that seems to be a place where churches struggle a bit. You know, once you start talking about advocacy, then people say, well, you know, just how involved are we going to be in this? Is this going to involve demonstrations and so on? Does that make sense? So this, this is a great question. Um, let me let me set a, set advocacy aside over here. We'll, we'll come to that in a minute. But okay. before advocacy... Um, when when you asked this question, I thought to myself, "Oh, okay. So if the church, if, if your church has, you know, a food bank that it has relationship with, or if it has uh, it shares in a responsibility to feed, um, you know, hungry people over in Bridgeport or or in some setting like that, you know, every month or something like that, the 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 first step in widening that out would be to say, gosh." Um, uh, I heard somebody say that climate change is causing world a world food crisis. And so you begin to learn about mm. that larger context because, you know, like it or not, yeah, I've been concerned about climate change since I first read Carl Sagan's uh, op-ed piece in 1978. And, um, uh, and like it or not, climate change, it's, it's a worldwide thing. So, if there are hungry people in Bridgeport, that's something your church can do something about very directly and very concretely. But but then to take the next step and say, not just vaguely, well, gee, there are hungry people all over the world, but specifically in relation to climate change, how is climate change causing, for example, this past season, all of East Africa to have... 40% of the crops they normally grow. Why? Because they had a, a swarm of locusts mm. that hadn't been seen in a thousand years. And the locusts, you know, ate up a huge percentage of their crops. Or we could bring it back home to Iowa. This storm that happened in Iowa two months ago took out something like 70% of the crops in Iowa. And because of the news cycle, that lasted, you know, about about 10 seconds mm -hmm. on the news cycle. But if you talk to people over in Iowa, I've preached in Iowa several times, um, you realize just completely devastating. And those farmers who may never have said anything about climate change are now very explicit, like, yeah, climate change wrecked our crops this year. Mm. So, so part. So, the first step I think is enlarging your sort of uh, a state of awareness um, in terms of climate impacts. And my guess is, and certainly my experience is, once people begin to make those connections and they begin to see that this isn't a political issue, it's an issue which scientists have a firm grasp on, and it's an issue that our generation has to do something about it. Then that next step to activism and advocacy becomes a more natural step. It's still the case that not everybody will take that step. Mm -hmm. But it also is quite amazing. Um, uh, a, a, you know, I, I don't know if uh, your congregation would be shocked by what I am about to say, but I, I might as well be straightforward. I've been arrested many, many times in relation to uh, climate change uh, and other environmental issues. 
And um, and when you asked this question, the way you put it about advocacy, I thought to myself, gosh, I can think of many times when somebody I am close with who doesn't see themselves as anybody who would ever do civil disobedience, because I like stayed in their house before I got chained to the White House wall, this this person, I won't give her name, but this person said, you know, I, I, I'm just not anybody who does civil disobedience. I, I work for the government and so forth, but I'm retired now and I'm going to join you. Mm. And she was as shocked by her saying that as I was. Um, <laughs> So, so the path to advocacy and the path to activism, it's not always obvious. And I think it can, it can happen in steps. Yeah. Oh, you know what? And one more thing, Ed, sharing that as part of what happens in worship is really important. I talk about a monthly or even a weekly testimony in our congregational life where a member of the church who has had an aha or has made a lifestyle change, or has gotten involved in some other organization, they just stand up and give one minute, and that's hard. It's really hard for preachers, but it's also hard for congregants. They just give one minute on that change. And what will happen is other members of the congregation will begin to sort of elbow elbow spouse to spouse and say, you know, we could do that. And then, and then the whole climate of engagement. And, you know, engagement is a nice word rather than advocacy. Mm. Um, uh, engagement is a nice word um, because everybody knows, of course, what it means. And then, and, and people are, it, it's not as loaded, I think, as advocacy uh, or activism is. For sure. And I think here I went on and on on that question. No, it's great. Not at all. I think and I think hearing from your peers is very inspiring because you mm. see you see someone who you respect say something you can agree with them, but you see your friend say something you say I'll join you, and that's so much easier. Yeah, so well said, Leslie. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, we have a question from the audience today. What is a fair guess of how much education is needed for a congregation before action can happen? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Oh. So. Uh, one of the things I do in my book, kind of following on what Catherine Hayhoe uh, sort of says to everybody in general, but because uh, in my role, you know, I was a leader, as I said, of 400 churches. I, I had 900 ordained clergy in Massachusetts that I was, uh, in a sense, there a leader. And one of the things I urge in my book is to preach regularly on climate change. So. So uh, I, I had that position for 12 years. And right at the beginning in 2006, I, I started by doing histograms. So I would gather up, oh, 40 or 100 clergy, you know, at, a, at some kind of meeting. I'd say, you know, before we meet on whatever it is we're going to meet on, I, could you guys all come out here in the, in the you know, big part of the room where, where there are no chairs or anything? And I'd like you to line up. Those of you that are preaching on climate change at least once a month, would you stand over here? And those of you that have never yet preached on climate change, would you stand over here? Everybody's going over, everybody's going over there. And, and then I would say to them, so this is in 06, I would say to them, you guys need to understand something, that if all of us don't start preaching on climate change regularly, sometime in, in the near future, the only reason people will come to church 
is in order to grieve over the world we let go. Mm. And you, you know, pastors understand grief. And you could see all their lights go on, like, oh my gosh. So losing the world is analogous to losing a family member. Oh, I have helped hundreds of family members who have been in loss. Is that what we're it really that's what, losing the world? Holy cow. And and gradually over, over my 12 years there, you know, they would migrate over here where they were preaching more regularly on it. Um so now I want to, all of that is, is kind of context in order to answer this question. I think the, the one important response to this question is that the congregation needs to feel like their pastor cares about this issue, is not bound, uh, it, it's not a political caring that their pastor has, but it's a biblical caring that acknowledges Psalm 24, verse one, the earth is the Lord's. It is not ours to wreck. The, the second part is not part of the Psalm. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> and, and when the congregation sees that, and, and that can happen in one sermon, but you know, how, uh, you know, half the congregation isn't there for that sermon. So yes, a pastor needs to preach on it several times. And once a pastor does that in, in, the, in the way that we're talking about right now, um, the, uh, my experience is the congregation, because they trust their pastors, that's the key, because they trust their pastors, the congregation then is willing, back to that word I used a moment ago, to engage the issue. And that's going to work out differently for different congregations. And the sequence of how a congregation engages an issue will also be different for different congregations. Absolutely. So thank you. Thanks, Nancy, for that question. We have another one from our friend Heather. I have always wanted a grandchild, she says, but I nevertheless feel that overpopulation is the main driver of climate change. When and how does this issue come into the conversation? Oh, well, Heather, thank you. Uh, that's that's a, uh, a, a very serious and an excellent question. And uh, just to back up your, your point there, if, if we had some kind of a graphic here of the United Nations website, which is a ginormous website, right? Lots of information. What you would find is that the biggest uh, 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 content on the UN website is climate change. They've, they've been at it since 1992. But prior to that, from 1972 until the mid 1990s, a large focus of the United Nations had to do with overpopulation. And, and so you're not alone in wondering this question. That's why I wanted to give that bit of background. That said, um, if all we do is worry about or think about or you know assign uh, accountability to the issue of population, uh, we're missing something really significant. And that is, just to give you one statistic, that is the average American has an impact on the climate two hundred times what the average person born in the Congo has. And that's because of our materialism. 
And and so it's it's not it's it's not how do I want to put this? Um, people don't all have the same impact on the earth. People don't all have have the same impact on our climate. Uh, and and as a consequence, uh, Greta Thunberg, for example, she's uh, uh, very uh, direct in saying, you know, the bigger uh, your impact on the environment, the bigger your impact on the climate, the bigger your responsibility. Uh, so when she was speaking at Davos, something I talked about in my sermon, for those of you that may not have heard my sermon, I, I just mentioned this twice. Um, uh, for people that go to Davos in private jets, she's making a big point to them because if you have a private jet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you're having a big impact. So, so the issue of population is connected to the issue of consumption. And, and, uh, and what a great conversation for a congregation to have in that regard. Um, many listeners to this recognize the name Bill McKibben as somebody who has uh, probably had a bigger impact on uh, climate uh, conversation than almost anybody on the planet. Um, and But a book of bills that most people have never heard of is a book he wrote, I don't know, 25 years ago or so called Maybe One. And it was a book about whether we should consider having children. Mm-hmm. And his answer to that question was maybe one. Mm-hmm. And, and and let me say let me say to kind of wrap this up, unless you have a follow-up question on, on this. Um, this is a sermon no pastor can preach mm-hmm. for obvious reasons, right? And yet, to the point of the person who asked the question, it's a conundrum that. People my age, I'm 70, feel in the context of the questioner who asked this question, it's also a conundrum that people in Gen Z feel. Mm-hmm. There, there are several books that have come out in the past two years, authored by people 35 years and younger, uh, who are, have decided not to have children. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, it's not because of overpopulation, but it's because of the climate crisis. And the two are related, as your questioner suggests. So those are those are a variety of perspectives on. It's a very important and difficult question. Thank you for that, Jim. I I, I will chime in uh, that that is often part of you know as I view the rest of my life and 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 what I want that to look like as as a future family. It's all part of what I consider, and I know I'm not alone in that um, with my my fellow millennials. Um, it's a big thing. Mm-hmm. I think I would just add that what you're describing, Leslie, what you're sharing, you know, here's here's a deeply personal decision that's being impacted by this overarching global reality, right? So if we if we're in this frame of mind that oh, it's so big, I don't know how to relate to it, right? In, in fact, a lot of people are relating to it in a very personal way. And here's an opportunity for the church to say, if there's any reason for having hope and thinking about how you're going to shape your family's life and so on, being part of the opportunity as you describe it, I think would change that. Right, and and just to add to what you just very uh, articulately said, Ed, if church can't be a place where we process 
this? Right. Where else can we? Mm-hmm. And and so in a way, we might think, you know, this is it's like unthinkable that we would talk about something like this at church. And I want to flip that and say, oh my God, church mm-hmm. needs to be just the place where we have what is understandably a difficult conversation, Mm -hmm. but it's a safe place where we can have that conversation. Yeah, exactly. Um, So I'm going to shift this conversation to kind of a specific question that churches sometimes face as they are forging their annual operating budgets. So speaking about getting down to specifics, so what is a what does a church budget start to look like when people are processing doing that processing that you're describing and I love how you how you phrase that and frame it when a church is thinking about what our impact is going to be on the environment just our impact and what is what is, what role is is God calling us you know to claim as part of this what questions would you like to be on the table when we've got our pens out and our spreadsheets open? What would you say to that group that's framing the original budget for the governing board to consider and then the congregation? So uh, so this is a wonderful question. And um, I have to say, I, you know, I've been talking publicly about climate change for God knows how long, 15, 20 years. And um, and no one's ever put it quite that way. So it, it, it you, you've really framed it in a, a very concrete uh, way that any any church leader uh, ordained or otherwise uh, recognizes. So uh, let me give let me give my global answer first, and then I'll give some specifics. My global answer is uh, the church needs to recognize all of its assets now. When we dig down into a budget, at least any finance committee I've ever worked with, we're focused on financial assets. Thank you very much. Whatever that pastor thinks is is, is all of our assets, God knows. But we we you know tonight we got to come out with a budget, and that has to do with money. But but back away from that. At some point, it may not be the finance committee meeting. It may be the church council meeting. It could be a congregational annual meeting. And talk about all of your assets, and 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 I'm gonna I'm gonna answer your question more specifically in a moment. But I want to wrap up the all your assets thing in the final way. When I was I was asked uh, to address um, the congregation in uh, the UCC congregation in Weston, um, Massachusetts, which is by different measures the wealthiest town in Massachusetts. And they said, you know, uh, we 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 all believe the science. Um, this is not a political issue for us. It's a spiritual issue. We want to have a next level conversation. And what I said to them was, listen, consider all your assets. And this was a conversation with about 20 people. And, and I said, um, for example, what kind of influence uh, do you folks have uh, at, in, in the state house? And they they know each other. They know the kind of influence they have in the state house. And then I say, well, listen, you know, three, three weeks ago, I got arrested in Governor Baker's office over this specific issue. Could he uh, write an executive order to prohibit new fossil fuel infrastructure in the state of Massachusetts? And here, here's the point about assets. What if everybody in this room, these 30, 40 people in this room, 
what if all of you were to bring to bear your influence on our state representatives in order to make that happen? You could get it done, couldn't you? And they all sort of looked at me with a little pathetic look on their face like, yeah, I guess we probably could get it done. And I said, so, and what if you called in all your chits? That's the phrase that I, that I use. So, so I'm using that phrase uh, 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 partly because I, I know who the audience of this conversation might be. And my guess is it's an audience that has a lot of chits that could be called in. And frankly, it's very rare that any sort of speaker like me suggests to a congregation you know, you guys could really call in all your chits on a particular issue and get something done. When I was pastor of, of the UCC Church in Shaker Heights, Ohio, I said to them from the pulpit with some regularity, if this congregation decided collectively to have an impact on Northeast Ohio and change something really fundamental like health care, this was before Obamacare, like health care you could make that change because you have that kind of influence. And no one disagreed with me. Did they do it? That's a separate issue. But the question that I'm begging as, as a high level response to your question is, what are, what are the assets? What is the influence that a congregation like yours has? So that's, I think, where you have to start. Now let me specifically respond in, 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 in a shorter answer to your question about budget. It's often the case that when, when a church looks at its, its annual budget, it, you know, it's only looking at the um, you know, pledges for the year against the expenses for the year. And it's often the case uh, that the whole issue of endowment, the draw from the endowment, the way the endowment invest is invested, that, that's all like a separate committee, a separate conversation and so forth. And I just want to say, uh, so that anybody listening to this recognizes that uh, since 2012, there's been a conversation in America and now worldwide about divesting from fossil fuel companies. And uh, Bill McKibben started that conversation in August 2012 when he wrote an article in uh, Rolling Stone magazine and uh, my denomination, the United Church of Christ, passed a resolution in June of 2013 uh, to divest our, our national settings um, holdings from fossil fuels. And neither Bill nor I nor anybody involved in the movement then ever imagined uh, what would happen. But today, as I, as I am talking to you, portfolios worth $14 trillion dollars have purged their holdings of fossil fuel companies. And as a consequence, in its annual report in 2019, Shell Oil Company said the divestment movement constitutes a material threat to our business. So one of the things a local church needs to do, particularly if the church has an endowment, is to say, how, you know, have, have we taken seriously that asset, which is our endowment, and recognize that it has a moral claim also? Just like our annual budget, it represents a kind of a moral calendar, if you will, or a moral graph, if you will, how we spend our money, what our values are. How do those coincide? That, that's the essence of your question, I think. Um, and, and so 
we need to look at all our assets. We, in particular, if we have an endowment, we need to look at that. And then finally, I, I think um, it's it's less a matter of money and more a matter of focus in terms of how your pastor preaches um, and what others, what books you study, um, uh, and what other ways you may engage the environment and the climate issue in the life of your church. Chances are it's not going to cost you any more money to accomplish any of that. It's just that you're going to prioritize the doing of that uh, in the limited time that you have together. Right, right. Jim, these have been great, great responses to these questions. And these are great questions, too. <laughs> kind, of, kind, of, kind of getting close to the end of our time. So I wanted to uh, just make one comment and then lead into a question. We love the way that you have restored and refreshed the idea of calling. This sense of being called by God, which is such a strong thread that runs right through the biblical texts, and you can see it right for thousands of years in all of the great sacred stories of faith. And you've brought that to bear, asking the question, what is it that a congregation plus all these individuals are feeling are being called to do? So that that gives I think that gives permission to people to explore that and recover that sense. So having said that, let's look out just over the next 10 years, which everyone involved in this movement seems to agree these 10 years are so critical, right? So if you could imagine that there is a that there's a calling that you have received about how to get the most urgent thing done in these next 10 years, understanding that different callings will reach people in different ways, and there'll be many ways of getting at this, but there's one core calling that you're, that you're really wanting to invite people to consider. People of faith as individuals and collectively in congregations, would you have a response to that? Well, so that's a, a high stakes question. <laughs> uh, uh, so what the time was, seemed ripe for was listening, what, what was that again? The time seemed ripe for a high stakes. Well, it, indeed, <laughs> what, what comes to my mind when you ask that question is, is this, that, um, and this relates to uh, the, you know, Leslie, your question er, er, earlier about urgency. Um, I can imagine, as I'm listening to your question, I can imagine uh, uh, you know, a dozen or two dozen congregations in Greenwich or in that area of Connecticut, which goes by different names. You all know those names better than me. Um, I can imagine dozens of such congregations uh, engaged in some version of the conversation we're having right now and saying, you know, uh, we're not on our own, you know, each of us we can collectively come together. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons, just as a side note, one of the reasons to collectively come together was made evident by Hurricane Sandy. Mm. And that will not be the last time a major hurricane is visited upon Northern New Jersey, New York, and parts of Connecticut and Long Island. Um, and I make this point in my book, actually. Um, and and so you you have you have the kind of immediate 
concern, I think, in common. But more than that, back to my point about, about assets, you also have the capacity to have a huge influence. Uh, the, the, the nature of the, the towns and the people who live in those towns where you are located, the diversity of religious faiths that are present there, and, and, and I think their capacity to come together on this climate issue mm-hmm. could become a model mm-hmm. for other, other sort of chunks of the U.S. to say, yes, congregations need to lock arms on this issue. Mm. And some of the, now more concretely to your question, some of the reason to lock arms would be to have an influence on the uh, policies of your state. Some of the reason to lock arms would be to have an influence on the policies of the region. And and, uh, New England, more than any other region in the nation, is uh, has been and continues to be and has a, 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 a hopeful future in coming together around climate policies, um, and then of course there's you know, and influence on. Uh, it, there's that whole aspect, but the other aspect would be, you know, congregations. Like, this is kind of a silly way. It's kind of a you know, fifth grader way to, to say it, but congregations could compete with each other about who, you know, which is going to go greener faster and then figure out measurements of that. So Palo Alto has actually figured this out, what I, what I was just suggesting. And it's no surprise that Palo Alto would figure this out. And they have an app in which people and communities sort of compete with each other to see which one can go greener faster. The Episcopal Church, I know that's not your congregation, it's not my denomination, but the Episcopal Church has bought into that app. Mm. And it's called Sustaining Island Home. I think that's, I'm pretty sure that's the website, Sustaining Island Home. And so congregation by congregation by congregation, you can buy into this and then sort of have a, a kind of a competition, for lack of a better word, on who is getting greener faster. And, you know, people put in their data and they're, you know, like, we did this in our home. And it's all this kind of thing. Yeah, it's sort of goofy. So I, I'm, I'm answering your question in two different ways. There's the sort of goofy personal competition way, but then there's the high level policy way. And there's a way in which, Jim, you, you're not talking about anything congregations really do now. I know that I'm because I'm trying to answer your question, because your question is the next 10 years are the critical 10 years. I'm going back to your first question now. What do we need to do differently? Yeah. And we do need to think differently, act differently, be with each other differently around this because God has given us this incredible opportunity. Yeah. You know, I just, uh, one final comment maybe to layer onto this. And Jim, I thank you so much for your time with us. You know, your thoughtfulness, your dedication to this. I, I do love the way, although I initially found it frustrating as I was reading about you and then talking about you, that you're careful about not giving us too much specificity because I think you want us to hear the call, right? And I remember some years ago, I was attending a conference and Father Daniel Berrigan, who was such a great activist, a Jesuit priest and poet, in this country for so many years, and and so he'd been affiliated with so many justice movements. And someone said, 
you know, Father Berrigan, what should we do? And he said, you know, if you want to be involved in justice, justice will find you. So I think that's, I think that's what I'm beginning to realize as I listen to you more and more. If we want to make a difference with this, make ourselves available and uh, God will call us. Yes. Amen. Amen to that. And, and I'm going to use that Berrigan quote. Uh, Dan and I knew each other a little bit, but I never heard him say it so directly. That's a wonderful quotation. Jim, thank you. Leslie, thank you. Penny has just arrived on the scene. <laughs> and, uh, and I want to thank all of our participants, all of those who, who stayed with us for this one webinar. It's been a really, really rich experience. And Jim, we hope that the conversation has just begun and action will follow. Indeed, indeed. And I'll hold you and your congregation in prayer on that and on all things. Thank you, Jim. Likewise. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for listening. Round Hill Radio is brought to you by the friends and members of Round Hill Community Church. For more information, please visit roundhillcommunitychurch.org.